All right, Russell Bentley, we're live. Welcome to BBC Four. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it's the high, high point of my life being on the BBC. Just, just kidding. This is way better than the BBC. I'm sure it is. Yes. Um, how you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Have you ever been on a podcast before? Uh, no, I recorded some of my own lectures before, but that was more my convenience, partly to hear what I sounded like and also to make them available to my students. But no, I've never done podcasting. Yeah, I've thought about it a number of times, but I oh, have you. Yeah, I sort of lack the determination to organize it as you have, uh, and also like maybe I don't know as many interesting people as you do, excluding myself, of course. Hmm. No, fair enough. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I have determination to organize. Like I'm pretty disorganized. And on lots of things, I don't have like a, like I, I don't exactly have like a very powerful drive or effectiveness in terms of like, um, yeah, organizing things in general. I think it's more like this is become, this to me has become like a kind of intellectual and social like necessity. Right. I feel like I'm doing this out of like a, like existential need. This is an act of desperation. Kind of. Yeah. No, seriously. Right. Kind of. It's right. like, it's like, I feel like I'm grasping at my life and, and the world around me mm-hmm. trying to uh, come up with anything that will allow me to like breathe <laughs> right. in some sense, like just intellectually and socially and interpersonally in a way that is like, uh, yeah, satisfying and edifying. And, and like that, that cultivates the kind of like just everyday mm-hmm. being that I want to have. It's like the, we were talking about uh, down there, mm-hmm. uh, down, downstairs earlier that um, yeah, all, all this, all these sorts of things to me are basically they're like survival tactics. Like I feel like this podcast is a survival tactic right. because I, I'm not convinced that if I just keep living how I'm supposed to keep living, mm. um, sort of like normally, uh, in the, in the life that I have now assumed, it's not at all obvious to, to me that I will be able to maintain the kind of like just honest, serious, mature, intellectual independence and, and even just like baseline kind of like interpersonal, emotional, psychological health <laughs> that, that that I that I think a, a good human life should have, uh-huh. so so yeah so yeah don't d- definitely don't give me any credit for like uh, being well organized. It's, but you, it's but more... you, you must be well organized because the, the your discipline and you know, and your intellectual take on your discipline is very methodical. I mean the kind of stuff that you do. I mean I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I classify it as quantitative political science, and it has to be done in a particular way. And there there are certain methodologies that have to be followed. And there's stuff you can't say. There are things you can't just mm. um, decide to infer. Mm. So you, don't you have to be very organized in everything that you do and the way you approach everything that's in, well, not in every aspect of your life, but certainly in every aspect of your professional life? Yeah, I see the, I see the point you're making. Um, but it's not so much organization as, especially in sort of, yeah, the, the, hard, the more hard-nosed empirical political science is... It's formulaic, to be honest. I mean, a lot of it is precisely because the rules are rigorous and external to the to the researcher, mm-hmm. the basic sort of protocols of scientific method. Um, once you get that logic, then it's a matter of basically just being responsible to these uh, sort of pressures and trade-offs that you're trying to, to balance, um, which is... So it's almost a kind of obedience, mm-hmm. you know, to, to logic and obedience to sort of the protocols. Right. Which isn't, uh, to me, in my mind, that's a different kind of cognitive task than organization. I mean, obviously, on some basic level, I'm, I'm like, yeah. uh, I'm able to keep my life minimally organized as, like, an adult to function in, you know, in the ways that I do. Yeah. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, yeah, sure. But but I'm not especially organized. Like, it, 
I, I guess all I'm really trying to say is that if when you see me doing things like this podcast and these different kinds of like uh, experiments or kind of projects that I get into, it's not primarily because I'm like a like a highly ordered personality and mm-hmm. I'm able to like manage effectively a large number of tasks. <laughs> it, it, it's all it's it's all no literally. I mean, it's almost the opposite. It's like uh, I I'm not able to handle all of the things I'm supposed to be doing right now. And I'm, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm actually surviving. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm drowning basically in, in all of the sort of pressures and tasks that I'm supposed to be organizing in the different aspects of my life. So I'm like doing things like this podcast to create an opposite kind of space basically. Right. Um, but I got, yeah, I mean, I have my shit together enough to be able to like make that happen. Yeah. Right? I, I um, imagine you get yourself out of bed in the morning and you, you manage to have that first cup of coffee and, yeah. uh, and get yeah. to wherever you need to be during the day. But this is exactly what I'm trying to, in some sense, this is kind of pinpointing what I am kind of trying to do more generally with my life and in, in the different projects is like, take this sort of like responsibility and maturity and, and ability to handle like a large volume of tasks and jobs that academia has, you know, quite against my will <laughs> taught me how to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and stop giving it to academia. Um, and start giving it to myself and my friends, my family and these like creative projects. Um, Hmm. because in some sense, you know, academia, the, so I've been, I've been an academic now for coming up on three years Hmm. and it's basically been this insane boot camp in terms of like just being able to manage a very high volume of very diverse tasks, Hmm. all different kinds of cognitive sort of like demands, um, of different levels and different emotional challenges and all this. It's just like you're bombarded with all the shit you have to do. Mm. Uh, and then you also have to do your like, you know, independent organic sort of personal thinking, all this kind of shit. And that's been such like a devastating boot camp that I hate. I mean, I've like, I haven't liked it, you know, it's like really beat me down. Mm. Uh, and I, um, and, but as I'm surviving and I'm learning how to do it, it it's, it's giving me powers that I didn't have before. You know, things like my email game is, like, top-notch now. Hmm. Not because I care about email or ever wanted to have a good email game, but because if I didn't learn that, I would be not able to even do the basic things I have to do. Hmm. So now my email efficiency is, like, through the roof. Um, so it, so what do I do with that now that that's happened to me? Hmm. Do I just become satisfied that I'm a good emailer and I become, like, a comfortable, happy, functional academic? Or do I learn, do I, do I figure out how to take these, like, efficiencies that I've, been foisted on me almost, uh, and learn how to repurpose them and sort of like, uh, do danger, do more dangerous things with them that I'm not supposed to be doing with them in some mm-hmm. sense. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, it does. I've been doing this for considerably longer than, than three years and I haven't gained any of those efficiencies. Really? And, and I think a lot of it is because I've, uh, I've resisted the, the, I've been angry about the need to have those efficiencies. So it's almost subconsciously I've made myself consistently bad doing all the things that I need to be more mm. efficient and organized. Interesting. Uh, it took me a long time to figure out something I should have known ages ago about putting together a meeting agenda or just running a meeting or being a member of a committee or organizing my email in such a way that you don't end up with, and this is an actual example, 1,100 emails in your inbox at the end of a three-month period because mentally you didn't know how to process them so that you could actually do the things that you needed to do. Mm. So I, I mastered the art of kind of glancing at things that I needed to know something about and blagging the rest, but never actually learning the techniques mm. for being an efficient organizer or a manager or whatever you want to call it of these things. And since this stuff takes up an awful lot of my day um, these days, I ended up probably over the past three years while you were learning it, learning a lot of tricks that I resisted learning 
for a very long time before that. Okay. I, I deeply resented needing to have to have those skills. But this is interesting. This is an interesting empirical question because, I mean, it's not at all clear that my strategy will work or that it's the preferable one. I right. mean, and so only time will tell. If, right. If, you know, I might, I might be doing exactly the wrong thing, right? I might, I might be actually diving even further headlong into precisely what I should be uh, learning to not care about at all. Uh, and but that's not the same as caring about it. Uh, being, able to, being able to process it effectively isn't the same as caring about it at all. But, but it might get stuff out of your hair, aren't you? Yeah, arguably. But this is what I mean. I mean, I think this is an interesting empirical question because, I, of course, I could sort of... that That's the more favorable way to think about it, and I hope that's what I'm doing. Hmm. Um, but I often... You know, I think the mind plays tricks on you, and I think that I could very well be... This could actually me becoming sort of uh, invested in it in, in a way that... Uh, you know, I mean, let's see, let's see what I look like and what I, what I, let's see how I am in 10 years, right? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, cause so, I mean, you strike me as someone who, you know, you seem like a very balanced person. You um, seem like, you know, I, like if, if my demeanor and sort of intellectual capacity and, and just sort of functionality, but also, um, conviviality, the balance of all of these things in, in 10 years was what you have right now. I would consider that a success personally. Right. Um, so if I'm going off a different path and trying to, you know, do, do it a, di a different way, um, I'll have to keep in mind whether or not that's actually uh, going off the path of, of sanity and wisdom or if, uh, if I indeed maybe I'm figuring out different ways of repurposing it in a way that might work. I don't know. So maybe one empirical piece of evidence you'll want to gather is uh, over time, do you become very frustrated with people who haven't behave the way you've taught yourself to behave over the past three years? Do you get angry at people who aren't responding to your emails, uh, people who aren't organizing things that need to be organized? I think mm. I think that might be the kiss of death when that stuff like that actually starts preying on your mind. And you, okay. and you start saying things like, if people would just do their jobs, which I hear an awful lot of. Okay. No, I, no I, I, I'm, I'm very certain I can say that I've, I've become less and less concerned about people doing that. I mean, to me, that's the ideal attitude is like to care less and less about what the people around you are doing or not doing mm -hmm. and to be totally detached in a supportive, generous way, right? I like to just assume everyone is doing their best uh, and I want everyone to be as relaxed and carefree and unconcerned as possible. And I want other people to, I mean, I, I want, especially in academia, but in, actually in all things like in activism and stuff too, I generally want everyone I'm doing anything with, uh to be doing as little of what they feel like they need to be doing as possible mm -hmm. and be doing as much as possible of whatever it is they want to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's what all, like, so yeah, like I, I mean, after this, if you want to, if you're, if you're curious about the, all the things I do to be efficient, um, I could, show, I, I have, I do have a pretty mean game that I'm pretty proud of. I could definitely show you something. If, if you've got tricks, I'd love to. Like, have you on. ever heard of like text expansion? No. Um, I mean, that's like a oh, basic yeah, oh, one. Yes, yeah, um, software that, you know, you just type a couple of letters and it does the rest of the word for you. Yeah, exactly, right. And so that's the kind of efficiency you're talking about. There's just one example, lots of things like that. I do a lot of uh, automation, too, so you can basically, it's not even coding necessarily, some of it is, but some, but a lot of it is simple. You can basically, there are a lot of utilities that you can use to basically, anything that you do repetitively on the computer, yeah. you basically have the computer do most of it automatically for you, and then you basically... Uh, uh, do things like that, and text expansion is kind of just a, an example of that. Um, but there's lots of tricks sort of on that front that I've gotten pretty good at. Um, even things like hotkeys, like learning to use hotkeys, like making the investment. Mm -hmm. um, like a general rule that sort of computer people and hackers will, will tell you is that uh, you want to use the mouse as little as possible in all things. 
Um, so like really high powered computing, uh, high powered computers will basically, they can do everything from the keyboard. Right. Uh, just way quicker, takes like less sort of psychomotor skill, like, you know, less psychomotor resources and stuff like that. Right. And it's just quicker, right? Yeah. Um, it takes some up, upfront sort of investment costs to sort of program your, your mind and your muscles. But one, the more you do that, the, you just sort of start going really quickly. Hmm. So yeah, I, I do like a fair bit of that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not that it's not that uh, arcane or difficult to get into. But but basically, m my strategy and my thinking is that I've wanted to figure out how to do all of these bullshit things like email hmm. um, and forms and all all these different kinds of things that you have to do in modern occupations. Um, I want to do them as quickly and effectively as possible simply so that I can maximize all the other things I do and the free time that I have and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why it prevents me from, like, I don't expect other people, like, I don't want other people to be good emailers. Uh, you know, I want them to have, like, the most satisfied life that they can have, you know. Right. Uh, so to the degree that I'm, like, a proselytizer for this kind of stuff, yeah. it's only as, like, a tactic for... Um, creating free time and like liberated life yeah. it's not like i don't proselytize this stuff like like we need you to be a better worker in the department not at all like it's, it's almost the no, opposite i wouldn't associate you with that yeah yeah <laughs> no. and 10 years down the line i i, I hope that isn't the person that you've uh, that you've that we've made you mm. um, by by requiring you to be very efficient in responding to my emails for example mm. uh, or anything like that so um, everything you're talking about always makes me feel vaguely inadequate because I, there's just so much new stuff that i i feel like i don't have an opportunity to learn, mm. don't have an opportunity to talk about. And I, I um, one of the things I, I used to enjoy was that I could sort of pick up a book that wasn't quite in my field, but was interesting. And I think a lot of academics will say this. Spend some time just reading a few pages of it, and you just, um, I don't feel wiser, but I've, I feel like I've opened a window on a world that I now know is there, and it comforts me knowing that world is there. Mm. Same with what you are just saying about you know, coding and hotkeys and various things you can do. So I would love to learn more about things like that. Just spend an afternoon mm -hmm. talking to someone about the possibilities of these things. Because, of course, if you don't work in this field or you don't have to use those tools, you never know about the possibilities of it. You never really know what's out there. Mm. Uh, it's not even to avoid saying stupid things or buying the wrong computer when I go to the shop or something like that. Mm. Just just fascinated by, by what other people are talking about, what other people are doing. It's one of the things that actually drove me to academia. Is that I, I, I'm, I was very naive. I really thought that it would be spending a lot of time possibly sitting on a park bench talking to people about interesting things. <laughs> uh, I never had illusions about being surrounded by interesting students who were interested in anything you were talking about, but I, uh, it never occurred to me that I'd effectively be working like another, with a, for another business, which I had done before, mm. uh, but just of a different character and working with different kinds of clients and selling different kinds of products. Mm. So um, opening windows on things that are, that are all around me that I can't otherwise glimpse into is something I'd love to spend more time on. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I totally, I mean, I think most people feel like that. Uh, that I think we all have the sense that we would... I think it's a big reach to say most people feel like that. A lot of people think... that I deal with have absolutely no interest in learning anything outside of uh, discrete technical <laughs> skills that they need to learn and do for their jobs. That's a good question. Uh, again, that's just an interesting empirical question, like how much... Because what I was going to say is I think most people at least deep down somewhere inside of them, have a, a feeling that they, they just kind of... I think we all generally wish that our lives were a bit more expansive than they, than they are, right? Yeah. I think they're... I think... 
I don't think anyone would decline to have a life that's more expensive than it is. I mean, if you gave them the option, I think they would choose a more expensive life. If but it's interesting. There are no costs attached to it. But it's interesting, though, because what you're kind of saying, though, or suggesting, and this sort of goes back to something we were also talking before the podcast, is that, you know, actually, though, maybe there is actually a non-trivial amount of people who, even if given the opportunity for a more expansive life, would actually say, would decline. Uh, because it's basically... a. It, because in some sense, it, it sort of threatens the, the delicate equilibrium that they've cultivated for themselves through all kinds of lies and, and repressed desires and uh, perversions. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly. So it's like, I actually do think there's a non-trivial amount of people who um, are at a point where they, I think, sincerely would decline a more fulfilled, expansive, uh, liberated life mm. because they've so fully... They're so all in mm. on uh, a certain set of uh, uh, of, of habits and perspectives that currently make them able to function comfortably in the status quo, to the degree that liberation would be such an indictment of the way they're currently surviving and coping that the the, the gap between what they currently are and what they could become would actually be too painful for them. So that's really interesting because I, um, I very often think that uh, anytime you're doing something that I want to say nonconformist, it's not, it's not what's conventionally done, it's an attitude that's not conventionally had, a lot of the response you get to that, and I'm talking about you in particular, but me sometimes, you sometimes, anyone sometimes, is uh, a resentment because they see it as a, an indictment of what they've chosen to do and how they've chosen to live their mm -hmm. lives. And so one of the concerns I have is isn't that people would be comfortable carrying on with their life and they don't want it to be more expansive because they wouldn't experience it as more expansive. They'd actually feel it as quite stressful because of that indictment. But they turn around then and they want to deny you that expansiveness to your life. And the way things are organized, seems to me people like that always end up running things. <laughs> and they make it impossible or they, they increase those other things we were talking about earlier, you know, stress factors that make it impossible for you, me, other people to choose to shape their life in a different way, to include other things in it. And I find, I find that really kind of common. And I mean, common in the sense that it happens a lot. It's pervasive, if I can, if I can put it like that. It's a, um, effectively, your actions are telling me that the way I live my life is wrong, and I will not tolerate that. And I, I, I find that very upsetting and impossible to battle because of course it's the exact opposite of what's intended not intending anything towards anyone else's life when I choose mm. to live my life a particular way um, so you know, don't interpret any of my actions as a comment on you and I wish you'd stop doing that because you're making my life very difficult by doing so that kind of thing right no that's really prescient I think that's totally right and I think that's especially played out intergenerationally right I think right. Uh, I think anyway that one generation is basically constantly doing that at the society level to the next generation. Right. Um, because I think every generation feels indicted by any sort of changes that the, that the, the next generation wants to make, you know? Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, well, if you want to live your life fundamentally different than us, then what are you saying that we've been doing it wrong? You know, what, what, what you think we've been inadequate or incomplete or bad people all of this time. Right. And rather than, Rather than acknowledge that, you know, probably every generation might get a little, could potentially get a little bit better by being critical of the preceding generation, hmm. uh, 
and you know, old, as we get older, saying to ourselves, you know, it's healthy and good and natural. I would hope that the younger people coming up um, see things wrong and how we've done things and indict us for it and choose to live differently. Um, instead of seeing that as like a healthy and productive progression of history, um, adults, a lot of adults would rather shut it down. They would rather see the next generation, uh, the younger generation coming up, that is. Uh, they would rather see them enter all of the bad habits uh, of, of, of themselves, of, of the judging older generation, than experience the, the, the indictment uh, and, the, and the feeling of, huh, you know what? These kids are showing us that life could be lived better, and we just fail to do it. <laughs> uh, I think most people just can't, really don't want to uh, feel that. And so they will do everything they can to basically ensure that everyone around them is as mediocre as they are. <laughs> yeah, so I think the entire national curriculum and everything that happens in schools is constructed around that very thought. Um, I'm very much inclined to believe that universities are being pressured to structure everything we do around that, uh, lest any student, God help us, an undergraduate, start having any radical ideas about how they might want to live their life. Right. So one of the techniques that's routinely used is to create something that I occasionally refer to as demandingness, which is driven by a kind of fear um, and a, the consumerization of higher education. So, you know, give me what I need because I'm scared of not succeeding. I'm engaging in this this life-or-death struggle with my peers to get graduate-level jobs and to earn a decent income. And so you, you create constant anxiety so that you can never actually reflect on the, the problems you see around you, the unhappiness that you might mm. be experiencing. And you, you then, I think... Sorry, I'm just talking a lot of nonsense. Yeah, yeah. You start failing to recognize how many stress factors there are in your life and you start behaving in exactly the way um, you previous generation, I want to say rebelled against, but the, the idea of generational rebellion I think is, is, is open to some kind of testing. But stop questioning your elders if you want to put it in that, that mm. kind of generational divide. Mm. And we're going to make you, make you stop questioning it by making you scared all the time. Mm -hmm. And I see that happening all the time. I mean, what's happening in higher education, at least in this country, I don't know about in the U.S., but um, we are structuring everything we do around terrifying our students about, um, about the future. Yeah, and it is this sort of will to enforce on the youth and the students all of the miseries and sufferings that we endured simply because we endured them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Whereas, like, my attitude is almost the opposite, but I feel like it makes me a, 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 a sort of unhinged, unstable, kind of, like, crazy person. Yeah. Because my attitude is basically, like, now that I'm an academic, I want to basically uh, figure out how to spare my students of all of the things that uh, I didn't like about uni or that were bad for me in uni or that were counterproductive for me in uni. And I, so I basically want to minimize all of those bad things, and I want to point as clearly as I can, or at least gesture as clearly as I can, to precisely what is good and empowering and radical and exciting and and but but it's like if that's your if that's your philosophy as an academic, you're going to stick out like uh, a crazy uh, a, a crazy person basically. I mean, you won't because in some sense, by definition, that is that is crazy compared to what you're supposed to be doing, which is. Yeah, but you're, you're you're exactly right, and I, I think in some way I feel the same the same thing that you just described. Hmm. I can think of lots of things that I didn't like and I don't want to visit these things upon my own students. So what would, what would university be like if everybody 
had that kind of reflection rather than reproducing a system that they went through. Some of it is a lack of imagination. It's, a, it's a, just an unwillingness to think about or an inability to think about how it could be different, how it could have been different for you, mm. and you sort of came through it. So you think of it in terms of parenting and having been a child. You know, children tend to turn into the kinds of parents they had unless they think very hard about it and try to avoid those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, so you know, we all know that children who are beaten tend to become parents who beat their children. So we beat up our students. They, many of them become academics, quite a few of them become academics, and they beat up their students, and it, it becomes that kind of thing. Mm. You're right, though. You will stick out as a sore thumb. Uh, maybe you have experience sticking out as a sore thumb, but I, I'm, it's, it's a very strange situation to try to persuade people to do things differently. Sorry, I don't know how I started talking about higher education other than it just takes up my time. So. No, it's okay. Yeah, no, um, it, it's interesting. And I think a lot of the stuff we're talking about is not really even about academia. It's really just about sort of... Um, Sort of, sort of the you know the bourgeois profes- professions, if you will. Um, professions, I like that. More generally, mm-hmm. and I mean, I'm sure a lot of it applies to other types of of work, also. Um, I don't want to generalize too much, but I suspect. I mean, I think I think a lot of what we're talking about is a pretty universal condition that applies to m- most people working um, in sort of the advanced liberal democracy. Sort of just the generalized anxieties and, pr- and, pr- and pressures, the sort of hyper-pressurized hyper kind of uh, information-intensive kind of stress dynamics that define most work in different ways and to different severities, and I'm not, like, drawing equivalences necessarily. But I think that is a sort of world-historical um, feature of, of living and working in advanced liberal democracies, the wealthy countries, in other words, of the global north, um, that only the, the 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 tiniest minority of the sort of global jet setting point zero one percent are are freed from. Um, I think that's pretty g- generic and, and uh, wide ranging. But then I think there are these unique, weird things about different particular occupations, um, and I think academia is has a lot of unique, uniquely weird things about it. Um, not that it's uniquely bad or difficult, and there's nothing wor- there's nothing worse than you know the infamous sort of uh, you know the the complaining academic, right? Because we have like pretty relatively uh, you know privileged jobs, and it's relatively um, on, on some level we have very little to complain about relative to others. But it is precisely that image that that sort of the mythological perspective or perception of what an academia is that makes it, it so weird. And kind of uniquely violent <laughs> for the people um, within it, um, because pre- it's precisely that we all imagine we have this like relatively cushy, uh, relatively privileged uh, kind of job and place in society. And on some level, we obviously do, but in other ways, it's precisely that mythos that has allowed an extraordinary, inhuman amount of extra work to be imposed on it. And no one ca- no one really feels bad for academics, right? And and, and neither should they. Yeah. Um, I'm not asking for anyone's pity. I'm just saying that there is... I, I do believe that empirically there is this uh, really perverse thing that characterizes ac- academic work that I think very few people can can uh, understand because the mythos of, 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 of cushiness uh, kind of blinds people from... And, and including academics who take so much pride and joy and satisfaction from that status and, and sort of the mythos of, of the academic, in some sense, that's one of the main things we're paid in, is sort of the self-satisfaction of we are academics, and that's 
a good job that is revered and has status and, and respect and and, we're, and we like we we sort of get off on that right um but again it's precisely that we get paid in that sort of psychological income hmm. that they're able to silently and without any protest shovel more and more just inhuman amounts of expectations and pressures onto our psyches in a way that we can't even really talk to most people about hmm. because most people reasonably see us as like what the fuck are you complaining about you're the you like a cush academic job you know hmm. um so I think that is like the, again, I'm not like, you know, I don't want anyone to pity us. Uh, and I'm aware of, you know, how relatively lucky we are and how relatively uh, good a job it is. Um, but I do think that at least to ourselves as friends and colleagues and, and you know, maintaining like a, you know, s you know, uh, a realistic life. In some sense, this is consciousness raising, right? This is like what in the radical traditions we call consciousness raising. Mm -hmm like, you know, the socialist feminists in the 1970s who were all about, like, no, we actually have to get into groups on a regular basis and talk about real shit and say what we actually feel about and what is actually going on in our lives and how the world is affecting us. Because if we don't, we're going to go fucking crazy. And we're going to be, you know, oppressed and repressed. And um, in some sense, yeah, all I'm really saying is that, like, academics need that as much as anyone, but they don't give it to themselves because they feel so grateful to... They feel like they're... They, they need to be grateful, right? They feel like they, mm. uh, they feel so lucky and, and proud and satisfied to have the, the privilege, the supposedly privileged role that they have that they, they don't even allow themselves to commiserate and talk honestly and openly about how maybe this job is like fucked up in lots of ways that we need to fucking be more honest about. Yeah. So people do talk about it and they, they talk to a certain extent about how much it's changed over, over the years. But, um, is some of it driven, you think, by the fact that a lot of academics, there's a kind of, I want to say, entrepreneurial spirit, a very individual approach to everything. A lot of people who go into academia, maybe I'm making broad mm. generalizations here, um, were a particular kind of student all their lives, mm. and were always following a slightly different path. That might be more true in some disciplines than in other disciplines. So the idea of getting in groups and raising consciousness, I'm well aware of what that phenomenon would, would mean if academics sat down and actually talked to each other. It would be explosive in some cases. <laughs> Because a lot of people are actually suffering in silence. They don't realize that other people are actually going through precisely the same thing as much as we talk about the burgeoning workload. But is there a kind of person who's found themselves in this profession that that's precisely the sort of thing that's not likely to happen? And it then becomes something that's easy to capitalize on to keep people separate so that they don't actually gain that kind of awareness that would allow anything to change. How do you think it would be capitalized on? What do you mean? Um, the By constantly flattering academics that you know they are special people and we understand that things are changing. And this is what you actually get from university management. It, it isn't a failure to recognize how much crap is being dumped on us that didn't used to be dumped on us. Uh, it's a recognition, an explicit recognition that it's being dumped on us. And we're still trying to preserve that space that makes you, the academic, that special kind of thing, that respected professional, mm. the bourgeois professional doing whatever it is that, that one does as an academic, whatever that would classify one as an academic. So you, you get this continuous stream of flattery, reinforcement, that everything you think about yourself is actually true. <laughs> Nonetheless, we're going to keep dumping all this stuff on you because we as an institution don't have an alternative. We can't do it any other way ourselves. And who shall we blame for that? Well, we blame some societal factors, which are not the sorts of things university management actually talks about. Government regulation, which they do talk about quite a lot. Um, they occasionally will talk about the way the world is or what our students expect these, these days. 
They reinforce that self-image that academics have, and it becomes a way of capitalizing on that self-perception to get academics to do more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's definitely a fucked up sort of moral economy. Yes. Um, especially, or also how, since so much of it is sort of implicitly teamwork, especially just sort of the, the everyday chores of making departments function, mm-hmm. um, you're sort of held hostage to your to your friends and colleagues, right? The, the, the co-workers that you're friends with. Yeah. Um, if you don't want to fuck them over, you have to pick up your share of the inhuman labor load, right? Um, and so we're sort of played off each other in some sense. Right. Um, and, you know, we like to think of ourselves as conscientious, you know, play, conscientious people and good team players. Not free riders. Yes. And, it, and it's actually, it actually, the, the, the really perverse irony of it is that it actually leads us to become kind of silently more violent to each other in the sense that, in, in the sense that when I experience the workload, as something that I have to do as an ethical and sort of moral obligation to my colleagues, because if I don't do my fair share, then they're going to be left in the lurch or whatever. Um, in rising to that challenge to be a good person and a good team player, what I'm actually doing is shoring up um, the legitimacy of precisely that expectation of being able to do that workload. Mm-hmm. So if there are people who in the department who... Um, in other words, it's enforcing the same expectation on other people, whereas... If I just could not do it and was honest about how I can't do it, um, that would actually be more loving to my colleagues in some sense mm-hmm. because I would be chipping away at the expectation that anyone should be able to do this. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So there's this, there's this really weird thing where, and I think this is actually a more general principle in, in sort of in a society where everything is so turned upside down as it is sort of a, uh, as in our society, um, that sometimes like truly sincere love and care for the people around you requires a kind of um, deep intellectual honesty with the situation at hand. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it requires one to do things that, as, reflect, as sort of refracted through the status quo, looks like selfish or stupid or negligent. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's like, that's actually a, a really sincere, deep um, act of intellectual honesty and care to to the people around you in, in sort of refusing to, uh, yeah, shore up, uh, false illusory like structures. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So how do you communicate to people then, um, who might perceive this as, um, you're free riding, you can't carry a burden that everyone else is carrying. I accept everything that you're saying. It actually can be the, the beginning of a very fruitful conversation about what is actually reasonable for us to be doing. What kinds of things should we be doing? But the initial perception of this is going to be that, and I don't want to use you as an example because you're not actually like this, you know, Justin's just not pulling his weight. <laughs> Justin's free riding. This work is going to have to be done. hasn't been done over here. We're going to have to distribute it over to other people. And instead of experiencing that as, as a profound kind of love and care right. <laughs> uh, for your colleagues, it's, it's experienced as, uh, as you said, selfishness. So how do, you, how do you break through that barrier so that all the, cor- all the colleagues down our corridor see, hey, actually he's saying something about what I should be thinking as well. And yeah. we should be having a conversation about that, not about the work that needs to be Right. I think that's a really good question. And to me, the answer to that, how do you do that? It's, it's building a culture and all of us in our own little ways, at our own paces that people feel comfortable with, um, taking risks in contributing to the public culture in ways that sort of 
reverse the values. Um, you know, it's very sort of Nietzschean. I'm, I have in mind a sort of transvaluation of values, values, if you will, or something like this. Or, um, and I think that's done performatively, to be honest. Right. I think it's a matter of inhabiting what you're currently supposed to not inhabit, something that is sort of negatively charged, has a sort of negative ethical or moral or whatever kind of charge, um, inhabiting it in a way that is just a little bit more bold and a little bit more uh, intellectually honest um, and, and, and proud instead of cowering, you know? Um, so basically it would involve, that would be one thing. So sort of like any type of action or activity in which one is basically refusing to perform well um, or just not performing uh, at optimum or something like that or whatever. Something that currently would be called shirking or something like that, but saying, look, I'm going to be honest in, in a semi-public way to my, to my colleagues or maybe just in, in, in small groups or whatever or, or perhaps in, in meetings if, if, it's, if, it, if it fits, right? Basically saying, like, I'm not going to do this or I can't do this. Um, and... I understand that you all are going to see it as shirking, but I don't believe that it is shirking. And I actually think that uh, it's it's like more violent to each other that we all pretend we can do these things that we can't actually do in a, a normal human life. Um, and it is my belief that uh, this is the best way I can be. Uh, you know, this sort of, you, you're going to sound weird, right? You're going to sound a bit like kooky. You're going to sound a bit idealistic or just like off the hinges a bit. Um but I think we don't need to be as, we, we shouldn't be so afraid of that, you know? Mm. We should be more willing to take those risks of sounding a bit weird um, rather than just like looking normal and uh, going with the flow, knowing full well that it's like killing everyone. And that would, so that would be the, the one aspect of it. But the other aspect I think would be um, changing how we speak about and value and sort of attribute meaning and value to people who do things like shirk. Like, most departments have shirker, you know, some people who are, I'm, sh I'm sure most departments have, uh, and all universities have. And, and again, this is probably true of most sort of bureaucratic jobs or bourgeois professions, whatever. Um, there's always going to be someone in the office culture that, or at least that maybe a few people in the office culture, who are kind of seen by a lot of other people as slackers. Um, and the status quo ideology will be to, you know, give those people a kind of negative ethical charge, right? They're seen as, like, not good team players. They're seen as lazy or um, selfish, right? Um uh, but it's not that hard to just uh, attribute to them the opposite and say, no, those people you're calling slackers, I actually think they're really cool. I think they're really brilliant, and I think they're really sane, uh, paragons of wisdom. Um, and I think we should value them more. And in fact, it's us overworking types who are the sick ones. We're the ones who are punishing each other and sort of imposing these expectations on each other and pretending that we're something that we're not. Um, by living this like inhuman workload, like those people who are slacking, they actually have courage. They actually have the intellectual honesty um, with themselves and the comfort with themselves to not do this shit simply because they're afraid that we're going to call them slackers. And I, I, I mean, I do kind of actually say this in a, in a little bit in, in the experiences I have with people in academia, that the people I actually tend to admire um, and I'm interested in and like and who I think are cool and who I, who I actually think are good people and who I want to, and good intellectuals in some sense and who I want to value uh, in a, in a public and honest, open way tend to be, you know, there's some correlation there with, with people who are seen to be a slacker, who are not like performing at a high quantitative level in terms of outputs or whatever it might be. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so that's to me how, how culture has changed. That, that, that's sort of the politics of, uh, that's to me kind of an example of kind of the radical politics of, of mass culture change. It's basically like revert, like inverting 
how you behave and inverting how you attribute value and, and meaning and significance to the people around you in almost by definition, the opposite way that the status quo does. Um, and I think that's a really clever, actually kind of insight. It's like, cause it's not, you don't actually have to exercise extremely prescient judgment all the time in these like difficult calculations. Oh, is that guy good? Is that, is that person bad? Should I value this here or should I not there? Almost as a rule of thumb, you can basically say whatever the status quo is sort of making you feel like you need to say, if you just do the opposite, it, by and large, that is usually sort of the, the radical, that, that will have a kind of, in terms of cultural effect, I think that will have a, a kind of progressive uh, political uh, effectiveness to it, almost by definition. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, but I, I would add that some of the people who um, are called shirkers genuinely are shirkers. Um, and, yeah. and they are consciously not doing something that they know someone else will pick up and they don't care about inhuman workloads. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in academia, the way that manifests itself is anyone who pushes off anything that isn't about their own career progression, um, which mm -hmm. in academia often means just concentrating on their research because we all know that's what gets jobs, that's what gets promotions. You're right. Like yeah. So there are there are people like that, and I think uh, it, it would really be an art form to be able to always know who's an actual shirker and who's making some kind of statement. Mm. Um, consciously okay, I see your point. Consciously or unconsciously. I, I see your point. So it's like so I want those people who are um, who might be called shirking or just aren't pulling their weight or appear to be free riding. I actually want them to consciously be thinking about what does it mean to live a human life that includes doing this for a living as opposed to people who are still workaholics in some way mm. who are pumping out the research constantly putting in grant bids and bring, maybe even bringing in tons of PhD students but that, you know that's that's where they they focus their efforts and that's all they want to do when there's other stuff that also needs to, that well, I would say needs to be done um, and they consciously push that on to other people and they don't care about the the humanity of their life to right. the extent that they care about their own, it's already been shaped by something else. But they don't really—they don't really give a damn how you spend your Saturday afternoon. That's an interesting nuance. And if you're, and if you're miserable, that's and that's all the better. I think you're right, and that's interesting, and that is important. You're right because basically, if they're being—if they're shirking just to double down on their own like personal ambitions within the system, yeah. that makes them uh, not cool, reprehensible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if they're shirking to. Uh, basically relinquish and release from uh, this competitive system that oppresses everyone, then that's laudable, right? And, yeah. that, and maybe that's the, that's the difference, right? It's like, yeah. I so, think anyway. Because so so how, do you, how do you capture where their, where their energy is actually flowing, I suppose? It's usually not too hard to tell, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, right? I mean, yeah, okay. You can see where they spend their time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, and, but also where, where they, what, what the future brings them, right? Yeah. I mean, people, it's usually what people are paid in terms of privileges and rewards and money and success, you know, status quo success is usually a pretty direct measure of kind of how much they have bought into the exploitative system. I mean, in some sense, that's, that's all it really reflects in by definition in some right. sense. Um, and so yes, we're shirking, we're office shirking, uh, is followed by, uh, remarkable sort of personal success in that person's career yeah. within the system. Yeah. Um, you can be pretty sure you know what's going on there. It's a sign of something. But but when but when shirking from someone in the office is associated with, uh, they just seem to be spending more time with their family, or they just uh, or perhaps they're doing uh, 
really eccentric intellectual things that uh, no one's really paying attention to, but it seems it seems cool or interesting, maybe. Um, or, you know, um, you know, you can usually get these sorts of signals. Then that is the type of shirking that I'm sort of like, you know what, all the power to you. And uh, because to me, like people who people who shirk not for their own self empowerment and therefore not for their own self promotion within the system. By definition, that what that means is they are they are weakening that that oppressive system. They're they're weakening that that, that systematic uh, larger structure um, by not contributing to it. And it matters, like having you know, especially in academia, because I think in academia, because there is still this sort of myth, or there's at least like a living memory of a time in which academia was like a cush job, where it actually was cush, and you could you know you actually had a lot of time and yeah. um, you sit around talking a lot and, and, I, and I bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, well, you should tell me stories later <laughs> in the podcast because I would I would like to know. Um, but because that's still in living memory, at least to some degree, and it's still in the culture a bit, that it's, it's sort of seen, it's sort of associated with academia, there's an especially important kind of cultural battle, I think, being played out in academia, hmm. where these questions are still live, you know? Like, a lot of office cultures are in certain, certain occupations. There never was, and, and uh, there just never was any, any shared idea that, you know, more free time or more creative intellectual, more intellectual creativity would be like a reasonable claim uh, for anyone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so in those occupations, that cultural battle is not quite as live, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Not to say that it couldn't happen, and it probably should. I mean, I'll, I, I can imagine that sort of battle being waged in all occupations, and, and it should be. But in, but in academia, it's sort of, um, it's an especially salient um, cultural battle, I think, because there are still some uh, footholds uh, in, in sort of the older styles uh, of, of thinking about academia and, how, and what that lifestyle entails. Um, and I feel like so long as there's any living memory, it is incumbent upon us who are still in the system, and, and especially the young, the young scholars like myself, it is incumbent upon us to hold on as tight as possible to the, to the freedom and the margins mm-hmm. of movement that historically have been associated with academics. Um, because if we don't claim them and occupy them, then every year they will become farther and farther put behind us in, in history and memory. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? That's exactly and, what has happened. Yeah, and so that's why like I gravitate towards people in academia, mm-hmm. often who tend to be older, especially like older than you, Russell. I'm not talking. I'm not talking about you. I, but, but, like people really from from like uh, previous pre- really previous generations, mm-hmm. um, who who in contemporary definition of academic sort of functioning. Are, would be called shirkers or just like not live players anymore in yeah. some sense. Um, I see them as like paragons of wisdom and role models in some sense because my, my question is how can I do everything I can to ensure that I can have the right to that way of being also? Um, anyway, so, so, so yeah, like people, basically my basic point is just that um, people who confidently and almost carelessly assert their right to be shirking or or even just eccentric even things like dress like people who assert the right to basically look like a slob mm-hmm. that is a radical political act in academia because it's 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 protecting and occupying this space of, of freedom mm-hmm. um and sort of a non-respectability um and we a lot of people tend to see that sort of stuff as like slovenly or as immature or as lazy or as bad for the department or the, you know mm-hmm. i mean i think that's sort of the the the, the standard respectable institutional perspective on these types of things. But to me, that's like radical politics. Um, and I think I want to, I want to honor that. <laughs> right. 
Um, in terms of dressing, I actually think the, that I can't speak for other institutions, but in ours, I think people don't actually notice how other people are dressed. Um, I, I have to. I sit in a lot of committee rooms, a lot of different kinds of people, and they arrive in various states, if I can put it like that. And no one bats an eye. No one's one of the things I, I still like about working in a university. Come, yes. as, you, come as you are. Um, it's way more in the UK like that, though. In the US, it's now. Ba I mean, it's incre It's very different, right? I don't is know. It? I don't know what your. I, yeah, I don't know what your last contact with the US system I've is. I've never worked in the US system. Um, so. Yes, the respectability expectations of dress yeah. way way higher. Really? Yep, definitely. That's, that's I mean, it's not like it's not. I, I don't. I don't want to exaggerate it. It's like yeah, no. Of course, pl plenty of academics will go in. Um, you know, wearing sort of business casual. Right. You know, yeah. and then of course you sort of have, you always have sort of like the. Uh, the, it's almost like a tokenistic kind of like uh, really almost theatrically carefree type of professor, you know, yeah. maybe like Hawaiian shirt or something like this, right? Right. But it's like uh, it's like a, it's a it's a kind of polished carelessness, right? Yeah. Um, Everything's quite calculated. Yeah, it's a kind. Well, not that it's. I don't want to make it sound calculated. It's not like it's not like strategic exploitation or something like this. It's just like um, it's a kind of relaxed fashion mm. that is as considered and conscientious uh, and concerned about the department sort of uh, look and feel and professionalism as wearing a suit is. Mm -hmm. It's just like, the, it's like, it's like the form of uh, informality that is precisely reserved within a system of like increasingly uh, formal expectations. So uh, companies that have um, dress down Friday rules have very precise dress codes about what dress down mm -hmm. Friday will permit and it's business casual. It's uh, it's never jeans. It's never trainers. Um, open collar shirts, but no uh, no t shirts, no polo shirts, things like that. So it's a, you know, it's like, yeah, how men would dress. So it's it's always quite precise like that. So I understand exactly what you're saying. It's just we don't have a rule for it. We just have people who behave that way. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, something I was thinking about earlier when you're talking about um, culture and how things change and how people are. I, I've been in this country long enough to. Have been have seen the the ref transform from what was once the the research assessment exercise the RAE and uh, the the older generation what is now the older generation these are the people who are saying look let's play this game the the government has imposed this on us so we're going to have to go through this in order to get any kind of research funding but it can't last I mean it's just unsustainable that this kind of thing carry on. And for them, of course, that was exactly true. But what they didn't notice is that the rising generation of people who entered PhD programs internalized what was the framework within which everything was taking place, which was about producing research outputs at a given schedule so that you had a certain amount by the time you got to this deadline. And they did their PhDs under that. And that was the expectation when they got their, next job, their first job. And so they did it for their job. And they had PhD students, and they educated them to think the same way. And lo and behold, it didn't take more than a decade, maybe a decade and a half, before that was just the culture of the academy, mm. that everyone produces piecework, everyone um, works to some kind of schedule, to, to you know, you, you're creative in these intervals, and you, you do everything else we want you to do in the other intervals, but you can do it, and it ends up shaping the kind of research that people do. But everyone who ever says... This isn't going to last. This can't work. All they need to do is look at how that actually materialized for the ref. And 
when um, you're thinking about younger generation and how they need to hold on to something, yeah, I am astonished at how unquestioningly and how effortlessly they operate in this incredibly exploitative system because it's what they grew up in and no one ever told them that it used to be different. So they just know and expect that they're going to have to behave in particular ways. I'm, I'm not certain what their thinking patterns are about this, but they just know that if they're going to carry on doing this, this is what it would be required of them to do. And maybe the system selects for people who can actually perform like that, and other people end up leaving. But young people coming out of British PhD programs, I don't see them going into academia and questioning the structure of any of this stuff that I think is, is it's not just ruining our lives, I think it's ruining the quality of academia itself. Yeah. Uh, and ruining university life, and by extension, we're visiting it upon our students. Definitely. I mean, I don't even think, I mean, as someone who thinks about these things as, as much as anyone in sort of coming up in academia, I don't even think I'm going to try to question it. <laughs> uh, to, I mean, to be perfectly honest, not because, not because I don't have the concern or the, and it's not because I'm risk averse, it's not, um, it's not any of these things, it's that I think I don't think anyone thinks that the currently existing systems are worth are po are even possibly savable in some sense, and so I don't have this sort of you know uh, you know catastrophic you know sort of perspective where I'm like uh, trying to make the system blow up or something like that. Um, but I'm certainly not going it's to too appoint. Bad. I was counting on you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not going to appoint myself the task or the goal of, like, fixing any of it. You know, I mean, no, no. I think anyone who gets that into their head yeah. is uh, definitely crazy, probably, and, and probably, like, a psychopath or, like, a, at least a masochist of some kind. Uh, any, anyone who seriously wants to take on that kind of attitude, like, oh, I'm becoming an academic, and I believe in making the system uh, fundamentally better in a way that's humane and that actually gives all students optimal uh, education that they deserve um, and way that treats all... So all colleagues and, and workers at this university are treated well and as they should be. Uh, I mean, if, if anyone comes in academia with that sort of goal or attitude or vision, um, you can't survive. I mean, you won't survive. The cognitive dissonance would be so severe. Um, and to be honest, I think that happens to people. And, and that's, why they don't, that's why they leave academia. Or they're, they're count, they look like people will say that they couldn't hack it, right? That they couldn't do it. They just they couldn't handle it. Like these are the kinds of condescending judgments that will be made of a, a wide variety of people yeah. who actually are just too sane and too honest <laughs> to to be able to even participate in it in some sense. Right. Um, but clearly, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think there was valuable um, like uh, positions to occupy and ways of doing it in ways that are fundamentally progressive and and ultimately you know educational for, for students. So I, I would certainly be um, skeptical um, and possibly a little bit scared of anyone who went into this because they thought they were going to change the world or, or destroy all existing systems and, and that was their motive or they thought they could actually achieve that. Um, but we were talking earlier about those people who appear to be shirking but they're actually doing something quite radical. Um, so many people are coming out of PhD programs and getting jobs and the very idea of doing that in that individual sphere where they can actually operate and signal, send a message out, work with their own colleagues in their immediate department to affect change of some kind. They're not thinking like that at all. And I find that quite worrying because there's so much opportunity to think about that before you actually get a job 
that having a job squeezes out of you. It seems that it's squeezing out of people before they even get into the academic profession. Right. Which I strongly advise most anyone who's thinking about it not to do. Um, you'll be rewarded amply for going out and getting a proper job that pays a lot of money. Um, I think that academia can still be made a decent job. I just think it requires extraordinary sort of uh, personal honesty and detachment and a willingness to like fight significant cognitive and emotional battles with oneself and with like the institutions around one. And so I think that this, this is how academic, like having an academic position for me has basically now become an intellectual puzzle. And that's been the only way that I like, to be perfectly honest with you, like I haven't been happy. I just, for most of the time in my life as an academic in the past three years, like I, I, I very few days would be able to say like, I am happy with my life. Um, for the most part, it's just not what I thought it would be like. Um, and it's, it's just not, it's not what I, it's not what I had in the plans, <laughs> you know? Um, I, so I, I could go into much detail on that, but I won't, that, the, the point, the reason I'm saying that is just that, um, the reason I'm, I still believe in this and I still want to try to make this work as a life position, um, is is well, one, it's the obvious one that I, I still do believe that I can I can have some sort of minimal effect on students in a way that is helpful for them and productive for them uh, and politically and socially meaningful for society at large. Um, but as that possibility and that sort of efficacy is itself increasingly strangled by institutional dynamics, mm. um, my real sort of saving grace or kind of investment in the, the occupation of an academic in, in our contemporary society is more that I feel like I have a uniquely privileged and blessed kind of perspective or placement simply to understand precisely what has happened to this position in some sense. Right. And if I can just figure that out, like if I can, if I can just figure out why this is not as satisfying and happy as I thought it would be, if I can figure out why that is, how that's happened, and also figure out like actionable techniques of kind of micro political transformations, both on myself and with people around me, mm -hmm. that could actually effectively, in a sustainable way, but in, but in a radical way, subvert the bad things in a way that is also kind of psychologically sustainable for me, mm -hmm. and, and actually increases my own kind of intellectual capacities and and sort of interpersonal thinking and. and creative production spaces and capacities, mm. then it's not even just the, the value and the benefit I would get from having that goal and finally being able to sort of carve out against the odds, the intellectual kind of like life that I've dreamed of. Uh, obviously that would be like the, one of the driving goals. Um, but much more important and politically significant would be learning how to actually produce that out of a state of increasing alienation and anxiety and confusion. And do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So cool. like, I basically become interested in in how to live as like the political question that I'm interested in in some sense, and uh, that might sound just like totally crazy and hopelessly diffuse, but I'm like really now I've turned this like confusing, pretty depressing, like totally overstressed, uh, shitty few years, the past three years, into like a new like an entirely new platform of of like living and thinking um, that. I don't even know if any of that even made sense, but all I can say and I can testify is that it uh, it's working for me now, mm -hmm. and now I feel like I'm on a good tip where 
um, through things like this podcast and through things like uh, just thinking through these things and talk, having these conversations with people, I see many openings mm. for like the kind of life that I actually do believe in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's cool. No, that, that made, that made a lot of sense. And it's actually, it's actually really interesting. And I think I, um, I've never heard it expressed like that, but I, I think I've endorsed just everything that you said. Um, I, I don't want to pry into your past, but did you always imagine that you were going to become an academic or at what point did you realize oh, that, that was the direction? Yeah, I don't mind you prying at all. Please do. Um, I probably, I think like my first serious kind of recognition in myself that I had that like the intellectual, uh, dimensions of life were suited for me, um, was in high school in like the, the second half of high school. Uh, most of my life I was like a punk ass kid and was really bad, badly behaved in school. Mm. Always did. I was clever enough to get like minimally passing marks basically my entire educational career up until like high school. Um, and even high school, I basically did the least I could possibly get away with to get like the, just high enough marks to get into like a decent university. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I knew I needed to go to university to like get the fuck out of my like, uh, hometown. But, um, but I was never like invested in, in intellectual stuff and certainly not school ever like my entire life basically. And then in high school, in the second half of high school, reading became like a significant part of my life mm. in like a deep way. Um, in a kind of escapist way, like I would, um, for different reasons, I didn't really like being at my house very much. My, no, no, not very bad reasons. My family, my parents were good people. They never hurt us or anything like that. They were very good people. Um, and did a lot for us. And I love them. I'm grateful to them. Uh, just like the household situation. I, I just was a sort of restless, unhappy ungrateful little bastard. Uh, so I like, I just, I never like being home. And so I would like go to, um, I would go to like a fucking Starbucks and like read like basically all the free time I had, I would like do that. Um, and that was my first serious reckoning with like, just like, I just remember thinking like, this is basically the highest I have ever, I, this is like the highest I've ever felt as like a just human being. Like this is like the highest level I've ever accessed just like calm, quiet time with like a book, like hard, you know, challenging books. I was like reading philosophy and getting into philosophy and stuff like that. Um, just that, that sort of excitement and energy and, and kind of euphoria of my kind of intellectual capacities. And that was basically, I was kind of, that was the beginning of it all. I know very, uh, certainly. And then it kind of just got a little bit more intensified in uni. And then I had one good professor in uni, a political theorist, who was just uh, really interesting. He was, he was an older guy. Was, uh, his name's Arya, Arya Botlinik. Um, he's an Orthodox Jew and, and, and sort of a political theorist and, and theologian in some sense. Um, wore traditional uh, Jewish garb. Um, really, really incredibly brilliant guy. Uh, but what was so cool about him was he, uh, he had just no concern for basically like the temper or the expectations of the class. Hmm. And he would basically just old school style would come in uh, and basically just like read, read things like he must've been writing like that week. Uh, and he, and he just like would like, would not care at all if people thought it was interesting or if people were following along, mm-hmm. he would just go as intensely as he could, mm-hmm. um, saying the stuff he thought it was interesting, reading off his lectures basically. Um, and then would pack up and would leave. I mean, he was like nice. He'd like entertain questions or whatever, but I think what so attracted me to him and he kind of became like a mentor figure to me and I sort of took all of his classes and he liked me and supported me. And, uh, what, uh, what drew me to him was that he, uh, just how he didn't give a fuck. Like, you know, <laughs> he, he just, 
he was obsessed with his ideas and what he thought and what he thought was interesting and he knew he knew what he thought was interesting and he would just come in and we'd, he would say it and just that like incredible just detachment from reality really i mean it's like mm. something that people some people criticize academics for mm. but to me it's like it's so powerful and beautiful and cool and progressive and inspiring mm. and like that's the way i want to live like that's like so i think he was the first to kind of make me see like that the intellectual life was for me you know like that was like what I, that was like how i wanted to live like yeah. i wanted to go fucking crazy deep off the hinges and into, <laughs> into ideas uh-huh. become really brilliant uh-huh. to the point that like i couldn't even understand the or care about the people around me mm-hmm. in some sense i was just like content mm-hmm. and happy sort of exploring my ideas yeah. um no escapism in that uh <laughs> no no yeah that's a fair critique i'm sure i'm sure um but anyway, I'm sorry this is all a very long answer. You, no, you, no, it's I, really I don't want to make you regret asking me questions. No, um, autobiography interests me. Yeah, and uh, you're, of course, more than welcome to have the longest spiels you want. Um, that's what the podcast is all about. Uh, but so he was the one who basically, it was my experience with him and his classes that I was like, all right, fuck it, I'm going to try to do this. <laughs> you know? uh, and it was also because it was like, it was also because like the, the, the the bleakness of everything else on offer was increasingly clear to me right and and again he kind of like it was it was through my experience with him that uh probably everything else started to seem bleak i actually entered university in the business school i was going to be a fucking i was in the fucking entrepreneurship department oh my word yeah um I, i went to such a fucking bourgeois high school that basically like the cool kids did this like marketing club thing called deca it's like a obscure new jersey thing but um I forget what that even stands for, but it was like a future business leaders type bullshit. Um, and the coolest teacher in our high school was a, was the marketing teacher. He was the one everyone, everyone loved. He was like funny and cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, fucking marketing. He was a marketing guy. Um, and so that was like what had like coolness in, in my high school. Yeah. And I did that shit and I was fucking good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it's just like manipulating people. Right? It is, it's yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah it's totally just performance yeah. and uh, bullshitting. And I was pretty fucking good at it. So I was like, okay, I, I can do this shit. And I like won competitions and shit. Um, I was actually like the president of this like marketing club wow. in high school. Yeah, yeah. Even though I, even though I was like a punk kid my whole life, like skateboarder kind of like troublemaker. Uh-huh. I was just like, okay, well, I can do this shit, uh, and I'm kind of good at it. So if this is gonna give me a job, I guess I'll get into this. So I was like, it was like my ticket out of my home life, you know. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna be a fucking businessman. Whatever, I'll, yeah. I'll like start a business. It'll be cool. I'll make mad money. Right. <laughs> you know I mean? like, uh, so I went to I went to Temple University to, to study entrepreneurship in the business school there, which is actually a pretty good business school. Then I just took these some of these political theory classes by accident. I was like, fuck this entrepreneurship shit. <laughs> I was like I was like, I want to be like this fucking brilliant, uh, this brilliant professor guy. Um, so yeah. That, it was basically, yeah, so it was all, it was all downhill from that. But that was when I basically decided, it was with Arya Bawinick, that I was, like, I was realistic about the chances. I knew I didn't have, like, a very good chance of becoming, like, a successful, like, research academic. Um, and, in fact, I, I had very little confidence that I could or would. But I was, like, you know, I was, like, 22 at the time or whatever, 21, 20, I forget, uh, whatever, whatever, however old I was, like, sophomore year in university. I made I, I I did make the decision very clearly. I remember to myself that I, I said I'm going to do my best to try to become a professor. Right. I want to try to get one of these like research jobs. Yeah. Uh, so I'll do a PhD and I'll play the game as hard as I can to try to get a job, right. knowing full well that I probably wouldn't. And I was like very prepared to be like a adjunct kind of like a, like most people who get a PhD in these states are. Um, so I was prepared for that. But then I was just like, uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to try to be. An academic because uh, I decided that for me it was the most sensible way to try to make a living and and get out of like my family I come from like a pretty working-class family so like that I didn't have too much to fall back on really mm-hmm. um, 
So that, that yeah, so it was basically in uni that I decided I was going to try to do that. That's a very long answer to your question. Right. So I mean, the, the fellow who turned you around in university sounds very much like the guy I replaced at Yes, South, tell, me, South tell me about your path. When did you decide? Well, I'll tell you about Liam O'Sullivan first, only because you might have seen his name in one of the prizes we award oh, okay. yeah, uh, yeah. for our graduates or something like that. So he was, uh, I think he retired as a lecturer or a senior lecturer. He was very old generation, so you never actually, it was... It was it was not the done thing to go around asking for promotions. It was just a little bit vulgar <laughs> to expect to be promoted. Now you do this because you're interested in stuff. But he'd be the sort of person who, um, he'd be reading something on the bus into work. And he'd be reading Mill on representative government or something like that. And he'd see something that he hadn't seen before. And whatever else he was supposed to talk about that day, he'd walk in and talk about that and say, I had never noticed this before. Really? Did anyone else notice this? Look at this. When Mill is saying this, can we actually trust anything else he says if he's going to say things like, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing? And there was always a particular kind. I mean, he wasn't one of my instructors. So I, I, this is all secondhand. There's always going to be a particular kind of person, I think, who latches on to, to something like that. So some people who studied with him in Southampton and then got jobs in Southampton regaled me with stories about what it was like to listen to Liam lecture because there was absolutely no point in having a lecture schedule. All the stuff that we have to do, all the crap we have to put on Blackboard to make our students' lives well-organized so perish the thought they might actually uh, think about something by themselves. You know, Liam would never be able to do stuff like that. Huh. He would walk into the class and talk randomly about whatever had crossed his mind on the way to work that day. Um, and uh, he, was, he was also a, a chain smoker and a um, he, he had a distinction between being a drunk and being an alcoholic, and he, called, he considered himself an alcoholic, which, which was a rung above being a drunk. And he was very good friends with someone he classified as a drunk, um, and saw himself as the protector of this fellow because he was a drunk and he needed a good alcoholic to keep an eye on. <laughs> but Liam, Liam was wonderful pub company. Um, he gave some of his his best seminars, I think, to his colleagues because he was still hanging around after I got my job at Southampton. He retired, so that's why a job opened up. And we would still meet him in the pub, and he was just full of wonderful things to talk about. I mean, intellectual things, academic things, commentary on the world and what's going on. The kinds of things you're doing with podcasts, oh my God, if he was still alive, I, I would insist that you, you spent two hours, two days, two weeks wow. talking to Liam. He would always have something interesting to say and something interesting to... I love people who can just fucking rifle off shit. Yeah. You know? And... and yeah. The, the sort of person where there, there were just no intellectual boundaries. I mean, everything was connected to everything else. Everything that could intellectually stimulate, by definition, was exactly the sort of thing you should be spending your time on. Nice. Whatever it might be. No matter... And, it's a dying breed, man. And, and quite literally. Um, everyone I know who's like that is um, either dead or very close to <laughs> uh, at this stage. Uh, um, my, I mean, my, my career is considerably different from yours, except for the inspiring undergraduate instructors who for various reasons got me interested in the idea that uh, I was talking to you earlier about you know, windows that open up and you can see a world that you didn't know anything about. Mm. So um, three people stand out in my mind. One was a political theorist, Joel Schwartz, um, and he taught history of political thought. So he's the one who introduced me to the Greeks. Where was this? William and Mary. Okay, right. So, you know... I used to debate good. against kids at William and Mary. They had a good debate program. Did they? Yeah. I wasn't involved in it. Anyway, yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I participated in their international relations club. I think that was my extent of my involvement in community life. Um, so, I mean, questions about how to live one's life. You know, Joel introduced me to, to that, and it always made it seem like it should be the question you should always be asking. Hmm. 
but I had a, I also did a major in economics, so my economics professor, um, Bruce Roberts, who was the only person who didn't teach neoclassical economics, he taught Marxism. And so he taught us about Marxian economics. He taught, taught us about post-Keynesian economics or neo-Ricardian economics. Mm. Um, and then a history professor named um, Professor Sherman. I cannot for the life of me remember his first name. But these, again, you know, very worldly people, sort of people who could just converse knowledgeably about a lot of interesting things, some of it quite focused on their own discipline. But they just, they had, a, I want to say, a panoptic vision of how things should be. And they were mesmerizing to listen to. And you just kind of wanted to be in their company. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and so it totally. Was, uh, it always came out of their classes and out of any conversation with them, feeling really charged with just the the importance of ideas, hmm. uh, the importance of being able to talk about them and, and think about them um, in any context with anyone who is willing to participate with you. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a beautiful thing. I feel yeah, and I I, I think that something that's interesting and difficult about academia is like, I think a lot of that is sort of earned through time. Because I think there's a certain, like, comfort with uh, speaking at length that you kind of only get after a certain amount of seniority, yeah. you know? Uh, for better or worse, you know, because some would say that that's, like, a, you know, a kind of shitty, like, entitlement of uh, older folks who think that they can just sort of pull forth on things and dominate a conversation. That kind of... Some people, like, uh, stigmatize that kind of thing, but I, I think it's great. Like, I think it's cool, and I think everyone should be encouraged to do it more. Yeah. Um, and I think, like... But it's young. It's difficult when you're like a young scholar or a young academic, because like, what the fuck right do you have to like, uh, you know, speak at length to your colleagues or to anyone really? Uh, it's like, what the fuck do you know? But that's why I've had to do things like make this podcast. So Wait, I can, seriously, like, do you feel that I, way? Because well, because I've had to. Like, I would discourage you from feeling that way. Well, I feel like I, yeah, I definitely don't feel. You don't feel entitled to, um, be be the lecturer in the room, as or. I don't feel I don't feel entitled to hold forth on what I think about anything in almost any space. Not because there's bad people or bad institutions per se. It's not that the University of Southampton is, is, is worse than any other institution. It's just, and it's not that I have bad, shitty friends or anything like that. It's just that our culture has become so sterilized and sort of strangled by such a wide diversity of kind of instrumental concerns that the very phenomenon of someone with a lot of thoughts, uh, with the interest and the energy to like articulate a few of them in a row is like so weird that different groups of people for different reasons uh, just have very powerful ways of discouraging it hmm. and preventing it from happening. Right. And so um, that's why I've had to do things like make this podcast to give myself a fucking platform to like say all the crazy <laughs> shit I think. Um, and no, but it's also like, um, this is like one of the reasons I love my, my partner Aria and one of the reasons like we're partners is because she's like always let me hold forth. Like, you know, I mean, I mean, she's not, you know, I'm sure she gets, like, uh, frustrated or impatient with me sometimes. But she's a good listener. She basically doesn't have a problem with me, like, speak. Like, I like to speak in paragraphs, like, in general. Hmm. Um, most people are not cool with that. Hmm. But I think it's okay. And I want, I, like, actually want that. And so, like, Arya's always basically tolerated it, at least. You know, without any sort of negative judgment, she'll, like, she'll let me just, like, go on at things. Um, and, of course, I, I she's welcome to also. Not quite her style so much, but... Um, I tend to gravitate towards people who allow each other to be the most that they can be. And I think that's far from, most people just don't do that by default. You actually have to kind of, uh, people have to go out of their way to sort of uh, allow other people to, to expand. 
Um, but most types of like expansion, but like personal expansion of any kind, tends to look like things that we call bad, things that we call like selfish or self-obsessed or self-absorbed or neurotic or uh, dominating, right? Or like, um, so our, our, our cultures today have all the different kinds of cultures in our society. And, and when I say like our society, I'm talking about sort of, you know, global northern country, wealthy countries, right? Um, we just have so many ways of benignly shutting everyone the fuck up all the time. And I think it's fucked up. And I'm, yeah, so I'm trying to like come up with ways to counteract that. And that's one of the reasons. So the podcast isn't just about me giving myself a platform to like speak in long paragraphs and not give a fuck. But it's to give my friends and colleagues and other interesting people also that space. Um, because most people don't, most people rarely have that opportunity to, you know, not just say one thing they think very modestly and quickly, but to also say like 10 follow-up sentences or bullet points just as they come to them, as, as they go through their mind, right? Um, I think it's important people have that opportunity. Speaking of paragraphs, I like that phrase. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. I'm going to use that. It's a... Um... So, do you do any any writing that isn't academic writing? You must do some creative writing of some kind. Yeah, I'm happy to say that it's probably become, for the past few months at least, it's become a majority of the text that I produce. Right. Um, again, I've been... Uh, let me close the door. Actually, I'm going to get some water. Can we pause for a minute? Yes. I would love some more water if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's sort of like we were saying before. Um, I, a lot of this is just resentment. Like, most of our world, I think, is driven by resentment. Hmm. This is why I'm, I'm into Nietzsche, right? Because he's, like, very strong on precisely this kind of diagnosis. Yeah, I think he's well known for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but, like, the stuff we're talking about, about opportunities to speak and express yourself at length. Yeah. You know, most people um, just do not want to give people the, the time or attention to let them hold forth on anything. In part, mostly because I think they're, we're just, like, so filled with resentment. Most people, I think, like, carry around this feeling that, they're not, they're not able to be all that they know they're able to be. And so whenever they see anyone else kind of flourishing, they're like, who the fuck do you think you are? You better f- shut that shit up. You know? Uh, do you know what I mean? So they think you're being pretentious if you're... Uh, a long-form conversation is a dying art, I would imagine. But, uh, it, so when they, yeah. when they hear someone speaking in paragraphs, yeah. they, they interpret that in a, a pompous, arrogant way, I assume. Oh, so yeah. Well, I, I would say... I think it's pretty fair to say that is... The, the cultural norm hmm. for sure or maybe different people depending on their predisposition and their their sort of social their position in society will give it slightly different adjectives but they'll all be negative for the most part i think right. um by and large don't you think so i so in i mean i'll tell you this and i can only speak from like sort of the social circles i'm most familiar with um but like in activism for instance like the sociology of activism of uh, in activist circles is basically like Anyone who just thinks a little bit too much or wants to speak a little bit too much uh, relative to others um, is seen as, like, a dominator, basically. Like, a dominator of the space. Um, And and so activists... And so, of course, like, if you want to roll in those circles, you just learn not to do that. And so I'm, I'm like, you know, able to do that. I have, like, self-control, and I I, I don't need to, like, hear myself speak, you know? Mm -hmm. So I can get along well and find in circles where you know, everyone is just expected to speak a little bit and take turns saying, like, very short um, thoughts. Um, so I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's massively, like, it's not radical at all. I mean, it's massively repressive. Um, but, I mean, 
These aren't misplaced concerns. I mean, when you when you, <laughs> when you think about think about the history of rhetoric, you know, those who can those who can withhold for an extended mm. period of time, they either wear down their opposition, or they're just actually they have a greater opportunity to persuade. It's think about a written text. I mean, you mm. can do so much more in a four thousand word text than you can in a two thousand word text that you've written. There are different ways you can expand things, mm. different terms of terms of phrase you can use. So you know, if I was if I was in a political environment and someone was doing an awful lot of talking, I would at least become suspicious of what it is that they're trying to do and what their psychological makeup is with respect to the group. How do they see the group with respect to themselves? Are they actually trying to become someone who's more important than anyone else? And I'd be very conscious of someone who might then try to hijack whatever this group had assembled to do just by being the most vocal person in the room. For sure. The person who... Yeah doesn't mind speaking in endless paragraphs. You know, what, are, what are they thinking when they do that? I'm very much of the view that you know, long-form conversation is, is uh, practically a dead art uh, at the moment, but I'm, um, I wouldn't say I'm always resentful of people who will hold forth for a long period of time or speak in longer than short sentences. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right that there is uh, reprehensible forms of uh, overly long speaking. Right, for sure. That that should be stigmatized and discouraged. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, so what, I'm trying, what I'm trying to ground it in is what is the motivation of the person who's doing it? I suppose. Right, for sure. Um, but 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 yeah. So so you're right. Um, but no, and and for sure. And so to stick with just the one sort of sociological milieu of activist circles. Um, no, there there is a a very legitimate concern. Like you can't have you can't have people in collective groups. Uh, who want to control everything or be overly dominated. I mean, that is a problem, that you tend to have, like, unequal power relations, and that can manifest itself through some people talking too much. I mean, that's an undeniable reality. So, of course, these things are rooted in real uh, possible threats uh, in these kinds of, like, communication politics. Um, but, like all things in sort of psychological, interpersonal dynamics, the reasonable bases become uh, really entwined with things like resentment and uh, sort of uh, the mutilation of each other for, like, opaque, uh, disingenuous, and, like, collectively suicidal reasons. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? No, really, I mean... Um, but this, again, this is, this is just like Freud and, and Nietzsche and th this whole sort of tradition of critical psychology. It's not saying, like... Uh, everyone is just like totally full of shit. It's saying there are, there are core fundamental reasons behind why we need to do the things that we need to do that are understandable. Um, and yet they get, they just end up getting roped in with all kinds of, uh, bullshit. Uh, at least that's one way to summarize it or the way I see it. So with activism, for instance, um, the very reasonable concern about people not dominating a group or a conversation, um, becomes also a kind of generalized, allergy to anything that's too intense you know or anything that's too you know the, the the possibility that one person in a group is kind of becoming something that they weren't the day before mm -hmm. well we can't have any of that because that looks a little bit too much like demagoguery or uh like you know like dangerous charismatic manipulation type do you know what i mean yeah. so so again very re reasonable sort of bases for concern or or um hesitation become the the weapon 
whereby resentful individuals will ensure that no one around them become anything greater than they already are. Right. Um, and that's, that's how I see this sort of stuff around, just to take as one example, you know, the habit of speaking at length, actually just sort of expounding, uh, and not just saying what you think quickly and modestly as if you don't want anyone to understand it, uh, but saying what you think and then actually kind of uh, riffing a little bit because you're passionate about it, because, but also because you th it's a complicated idea maybe, and there needs to be a few additional bullet points to actually say that one thing that you're trying to say, mm -hmm. um, and to do it with a certain intensity and, and energy uh, and, and kind of vivaciousness that is necessary to actually uh, do the one simple modest thing that you're trying to do in that moment. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, I think a lot of people are basically, for different reasons, in activist circles, there's a certain psychology and a certain sort of vocabulary whereby this sort of stuff is repressed. But then in other milieus, it's a basically the same phenomenon, but with different vocabularies and different sort of reasonable sort of pretexts that are then manipulated. Mm -hmm. So even just in regular conversation, like, uh, so I'm friends with a lot of sort of, you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings in Southampton. It's a pretty good, like, little social set here, actually, that I'm very grateful for. A lot of nice people and... Um, and I spend some time with people and have drinks with people and stuff. Uh, all different sort of, you know, states of life and jobs and or non-jobs and uh, whatever it might be. Um, and I enjoy I enjoy my interactions with with all the cool people around in Southampton. I will just say though that there is a kind of, and I think this is characteristic of sort of um, young adult culture in, especially in the UK perhaps, but but also no less in the US really, of of just like what in the UK is called banter. Right. And what in the U.S., I don't know, you call like small talk or whatever um, here, like in the U.K., like banter is it's almost like a fine art of small talk uh, in some sort or like joking. I guess it's qualitatively different a little bit. I never quite understood what it means. But. Well, in the U.K., it seems like ban bantering is a kind of specific practice where like you sit around with your mates and and you kind of take turns somewhat theatrically, like making jokes and making fun yeah. and bullshitting. Okay. So it's like self-consciously meaningless. It's like reveling in the meaninglessness the, the lightheartedness of like none of this matters and we're going to boldly kind of explore how much we don't care that any of this matters and just sort of it's a, it, it, people who are smart and do it like in an interesting way it can be pretty fun and like uh, uh, interesting actually um, but for the most part it's just a culture of like uh, anything too serious is seen as like a downer and as uh, you're, you're not playing along with me you know um, and so, so that kind of, uh, anyway, so that, so there's that kind of culture, but just even generally, not even like in the hardcore banter, proper kind of like banter, uh, dynamics, just like basic kind of like pub conversation among 20s, 20s and 30 somethings, whatever in the, in the States and in the UK, there's just like a basic expectation that like, you don't get too smart, you know, like yeah. if you, tr if you get too smart, you just, that's just called pretentious basically. If you try to go too high with like your thinking, you're just a pretentious twat, right? Um, well, you wouldn't say that in the U.S., but um, no, you would hear that's no, here no. that's somehow acceptable. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's part of banter, I believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so so again, it's nothing it, too. It's considered, nothing, considered impolite, is it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, to be honest, like it's not even that. It's like cool. it's not even that. Like people will be will shame you necessarily. I mean, some might, um, but. It's more like people are negatively affected by it. Um, and again, because I think it's like, it's like people interpret it as a challenge. So if like, we're just talking about like everyday things and I have some like highfalutin 
like interesting comment on it that I think is really interesting. And it's just organically what is coming to my mind. That's like what I think is the interesting, valuable thing that I want to contribute that makes me excited and happy to share. Like that's just called fucking like living and being a part of the conversation, right? Like if I, it, it could be, it could be something that I just want to express as who I am. Um, and sometimes I will do it. And then uh, like, I will just notice that I sort of like, put like a pall over the room in some sense, like in a, in a really unspoken way. Um, but, but in a way that's like un, uh, pretty undeniable, I think. And I think the reason is because even if people don't think that you're a pretentious dick or whatever, um, they feel people have a, have a kind of knee jerk feeling that they are being challenged to be as like quote unquote smart or quote unquote like highbrow or whatever the fuck. Um, and so it's like, you can be not challenging in any possible way, not expecting that, not like competing in any way, not showing off nothing, just the, the most modest, simple kind of like lighthearted way. But people just like, can't not interpret it as like, uh, I'm stupid compared to that. Or like, I, I, I can't find like the, I can't find something like equally highbrow. So therefore like, uh, that was, that was like, that was like a bummer to have to hear him say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Again, I mean, I'm really kind of like, I'm not speaking for anyone, and I'm, I'm really kind of like just hypothesizing about the psychology. Yeah. Um, but I think that's definitely a thing. Okay, so you can hypothesize. So the, the, the psychology makes a lot of sense, and I can actually understand it from the other perspective as well. But it's because, so think about think about ethos, you know, think about classical rhetoric and the theories of classical rhetoric. Well, the, the source of the information is, is going to affect the way that you hear it. So whenever you say something, um, you're going to, you're going to, sound to me or any particular audience like the person who I know you to be. So you're someone with a doctorate, you're someone who's working in a university, sorry, I'm counting things off on my hand now, the microphone can't pick that up, so I'm dipping into academic mode. Um, and so all of those things are part of the communication as far as I'm concerned. So I would say that it objectively is a downer uh, to a lot of people. It's not just, yeah. it's not it's not resentment, It's it's actually you... It can be. I'm, not, I'm using you as an example. It, um, calling up your credentials, if if I can put it like that, and putting them on display as kind of the preface to anything that you're saying now. And that does, I think, actually affect people and make them feel a particular way. And it it doesn't have to be calculated to do that. Mm. And I'm, I would go so far as to say it's actually reasonable for them to feel that way because of the kind of person you are. I don't think it comes down to mm. banter or small talk or resentment or any of those other things. It's that they should actually hear you talking like that, and then it becomes incumbent on you to think about how me, the person I am, is going to sound to an audience like this. Yes. you're. Yeah, you're totally right about that. Uh, I, I think you're totally right. But the fact, that it, the fact that it's reasonable response doesn't mean that it's any less essentially resentment <laughs> do you know what I mean like yeah. um and and that it is ultimately a way of preventing someone from being the most they can be do you know what I mean yeah so it's like I accept that too yeah yeah so I, I agree completely that it's, it's it's very reasonable it's understandable and it's like it's not even like purposely bad natured I'm just interested I'm basically the reason I'm, t I'm speaking like this and now that I think about it I might sound like harsh or like cruel or something. I, but the reason, the only reason I might sound like that is because I'm not, I truly don't think about this in terms of like 
individual subjectivities and like bad people or good people or anything like that. I, I'm always interested in this primarily for like the sociological effect, hmm. like how groups are able to basically mutilate all the members in those groups hmm. uh, through no one purposely trying to mutilate anyone. Hmm. Um, and we know that groups, you know, we know like the social psychology of, of group behavior is like really real and, and, and deep. And, and so, yeah, I just, I'm interested in thinking those things through because if I don't, and I think a lot of people, and this is true for most people, if most people don't take very seriously how the people around them shape them, like how, especially, and especially how the people around them discourage them in certain ways that they might not even know they're doing. If you're not really hyper aware of that, then you're going to constantly be allowing yourself to basically float through life in this kind of like, in, in milieus mm. that, that almost by definition don't want you to be anything that you might want to be. Mm. Um, because that is more or less the fun. I mean, the function of groups in some sense that the very dynamics by which groups sustain themselves is precisely by preventing any of the members from becoming anything too different. Mm. Um, because that is the evolutionary norm of how groups you know, sustain themselves over time, basically. Mm. Um, and so I, I think it's really important that we, that we not mistake things that are just because they're reasonable and, and normal and natural and, and not based on any kind of purposely bad attitude or anything like that can still nonetheless be like really perverse um, sort of dynamics whereby the social structure at large works through one body to basically keep in, in control that other body. Um, and I think that that's why, that's basically what this sort of stuff is and why I, I think it's useful to talk about resentment and um, is because for the most part, um, yeah, I, th I just basically think that human beings have many ways of basically subtle and, and overt of... Um, making sure that the people around them don't become anything more than they already are. Because we, I think in a deep way, we don't want the people around us to flourish. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and um, I think we can see it every day. I suppose the point I was making is that... Um, I'm not certain what the point is that I was making. I was thinking about the, the power to manipulate people and the desire not to manipulate people, but to be in, um, in conversation with them. So how can you be in conversation with someone when right. <laughs> you are a particular thing or you have particular things um, that are likely to inspire particular kinds of psychological states in any given individual or any group of individuals? And uh, going back to your your interest in entrepreneurship back in the, <laughs> back in the early days, um, if you really wanted to manipulate people, you would you would always sound like the you know the down home guy who's just like you, right? Even though I'm very highly educated, even though I've got the PhD, you know, not the not the guy who can talk to his gardener, but the guy who seems like he is the gardener as well. So you know, those are the kinds of that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. I, I appreciate you say that. I, mean, I don't you, know where I'm going with that. No, that's brilliant though because you're you're reminding me something else. I often think about this is like when I hang out with other people my age, um, and I, and I, and I do kind of the thing you were suggesting, like, you know, uh, uh, sort of, um, how do I, how do I put this? Um, like not being overly highbrow, not being like overly intense, basically, basically like repressing my autonomous, like organic, personal, just lived intellectual and social energy 
but it's basically toning it down so that I can be, make everyone comfortable, basically. So I cannot make sort of these faux pas where I speak too intensely or too long or too uh, highbrow or whatever. Uh, when I do that, I'm too honest, I, I'm honest with myself enough, enough to know that it's condescension, you know, that I'm actually, I'm actually manipulating them in some way. Right. Um, and in a way that is actually hurtful in some sense, because I'm, I'm treating them as if they can't handle my intense intellectual shit. And I know that's fucking false. I know that they can handle it. I, because I know that they're just fucking as smart as I am. That I just, they just didn't do a fucking PhD early in life, right? Like, I know at, like, I know at the bottom of things that, like, anything, any fucking, like, intense highbrow shit that I might say because I had the, the lucky sort of life path that allowed me to get these resources and allowed me to get the self-confidence to be able to, like, say some crazy interesting, like, highbrow shit, um, like, in, like, a three-sentence, like, format, I know that that's not, like, a fundamental real difference between me and whoever the fuck I'm with. And I actually am pretty, I actually am pretty, I have pretty strong skills, I think, in saying things in a way that just, like, makes sense in plain English. Like, maybe it's weird or sounds ridiculous or whatever, but at least, like, you, you know, I don't use, like, jargon, you know, I don't use jargon in, in conversations with people, right? So it's not like, it's not like rarefied, kind of, like, exclusive behaviors or speech that I, I don't indulge in that at all. Like, I, uh, and it's because I don't really hang out with people like that. I actually hang, like, my actual peers are non-academic 20s and 30-somethings. So uh, this is coming from a sort of special place because it's like very real and, and personal to me. And, and, and this is why I'm thinking about this stuff so much. So basically, like, when I, when I find myself like becoming like too intense that I can feel myself making like it's a faux pas, um, like that is more honest and more ultimately caring. And like, like that's, the, that's like the realest, most loving, caring contribution I can make to, to my friendships. Um, and so, yeah, this is basically just like what you're, this is the obverse of what you're saying. Is that like any, doing anything else to fit in better or to make people feel comfortable or to like make people like me, that would just be treating people like children, but also manipulating them. And yeah. I don't think that that, but, but maybe that's what people want from each other. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think, I know, I think that's a really good point. I think it's a really good response to, to what I said, um, as well. So what I, so I would add to this then. If you're talking in a way where, in order for someone to fully grasp what it is that you're talking about, you would then have to do more explaining and become kind of the educator. I think that's where condescension actually mm. comes in. So maybe it's a style of communicating where you're doing exactly what you would normally do, but not in a condescending way, but you're talking to someone in a way that is going to be conversation with this particular person. Mm-hmm. And maybe saying exactly the same things, but in, in a different, different way. Because yeah. you have a different conversation with someone else. So, I mean, you know what it's like. You've been to academic conferences, I assume, and you would talk to people there, and you will hear a lot of jargon, and you will know instantly what that jargon means because you're immersed in this discipline, and you might rattle some of it off yourself. And the expectation is, of course, that that's how you're going to talk. Or um, And it would be considered... Well, you would look very strange if you were trying to simplify things, or I don't want to say simplify things, that is condescending, but speak in a way that you might speak, say, to um, my neighbor, your neighbor, someone who isn't, isn't working in a particular field. So it's really what I'm trying to key in on is um, an alertness to the audience and how I can never be in a position of appearing to be more powerful 
or appearing to want to appear more powerful, or appearing to have secret insights or specialist knowledge. Mm. Because I firmly believe, as you were saying, there's absolutely nothing fundamental distinguishing me from someone who doesn't do what I do. Uh, it, I, I've got a qualification and I've achieved a certain stage in life just by having not died yet. And that, that's, that's about the extent of it. No one is barred from understanding something that I understand, and they might even come to understand it better than I understand it. So how can I communicate with the people, people in a way who don't have my qualifications and not overpower them with the fact that I've got the qualifications? Mm. Does that make any sense? Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I, think, I, I, I don't think yeah, you're saying you just, different things. No, you, no, totally. You just laid out you know, the fine art of how to be like a good person and communicator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, you're talking, right? I mean, you were kind of just saying yeah. that's yeah. how to... Yeah, that's that's the balance that you strike, and it's not manipulation, but it's also not domination, right. and it's not condescension. There's just you're talking about there's a there is a kind of fundamental way of being present with someone, and I finding the the verbal or discursive space that just truly is that space which exists between those two people, right? Yeah. Uh, is that kind of that's how I'm interpreting it? Yeah, yeah. And it's neither it's neither it's not playing down or dumbing down. Or and it's not playing up, and if in the case of where if you feel like you're outclassed or something, um, it's just finding what where is the common ground and, and inhabiting that. Yeah. So um, I, I think we were talking before the before the microphone came on. Um, at some point, now uh, my my neighbors within earshot referred to uh, my wife and I as intellectual snobs. <laughs> and, and the astonishing thing about that is that we have um, and since then we've had numerous conversations with them. You know, leaning over the garden fence chatting with them, getting advice about you know, if they can recommend a good plumber, you know, stuff like that. Having everyday conversations about nothing in particular. Um, and then to to be referred to as an intellectual snob, um, because where I work, I'm trying to think, was there anything I ever said, anything I ever did, that could be interpreted as remotely intellectual in any conversation or any kind of intercourse I had with them? You're like, snob, and, maybe. I'll give them that. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe... I don't know. Maybe I, I, maybe I referred to something that just people of my class uh, do. Or, you know, I bought a book, or I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think the perceptions of power and the and the subtle exercises of power are one of the things I'm always very interested in, and, and diffusing those and and not letting them be front and center or even conspicuous. Right. Right. Sorry, I'm sort of running off on that. No, no, no. That's good. Um, I was just also thinking that, on the other hand, to be fair. I mean, sometimes I, I can just be, like, a self-absorbed dick, you know? Like, sometimes I can just, like, uh, go off on tangents and totally just get obsessed with what I'm thinking. And, and I so I can be, like, an unreasonable person sometimes, uh, maybe even often, just in, in sort of the the intensity at which I want to express something or the length at which I want to, I, I want to express something. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, it's definitely possible that, like, the, the negative reactions I might have felt uh, from this sort of tendency of mine in different spaces were just, like, very reasonable people sending signals to, like, telling me to chill the fuck out because I was being unreasonable. That is probably a thing. Um, but to me, everyone should do that periodically, you know? Like, we should all be slightly overshooting the mark and slightly undershooting the mark in a way that sort of periodic, that, that over time averages out. Mm. But instead of doing that, we're all constantly undershooting like our actual capacities in a, in a sort of fear of being too much. Hmm. Um, and so that is what, I, that is what I, 
that is what I think is sad and fucked up. And it's like, again, it's not individuals, like bad individuals. It's just like groups have this like downward spiral dynamic where it's like, uh, everyone wants to be, um, everyone wants to like, exp like pitch their own presence at a level that will never make the, you know, the, the least sophisticated or least intense or least capable, at least whatever you want to call it. I'm trying to use like non value laden terms, but there probably aren't any. I'm just saying like, everyone wants to behave always in a way that will be, um, as pleasant as possible for whoever in the group or in the presence is like, uh, most vulnerable to feeling something shitty. Right. In some sense, like, uh, among decent people, that will be the tendency. Uh, and that's good and reasonable. That's just like courtesy basically. Um, but what that ends up doing is like that's it's, it becomes this like implicit agreement where like everyone just imposes on everyone else. Um, like this like deep mediocrity. And I just, I just do believe that there must be a way for groups to be caring and loving and sensitive to like the feelings and the needs and the experiences of people who feel threatened or devalued or, or something in a group or just uncomfortable in a group. And also being like more honest and way more encouraging of of those people who can and want to like expand in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, like the, in some sense, you could actually argue that this is like one of the core pop, pop, like problems of politics in some sense, like the social, the social psychological, this is like a, a core social psychological dimension of like a great number of larger, more structural political questions. Um, especially around, if you think about like what the differences between like liberalism and conservatism or sort of left, left and right. Right. Um, in some sense, it's almost like fundamentally different social solutions to this like, uh, dilemma. Um, and so like the left leaning one tends to be like the more like, uh, like, uh, like self-effacing type, like we, like sensitivity, like political correctness, this kind of stuff. Right. Um, whereas like the right one is like, uh, let's just be more honest about these like differences and inequalities. Um, but we'll like, uh, we'll have like deep community around it or something like that. Um, does that make any sense? I'm, I'm really fishing for like at, at the out, at the outer bounds of like what I think. So I don't even, I'm getting to that place where like, I don't even know what I'm saying, but does that make any sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, I think, um, I don't think anything's dividing us. I think we, we spend time in different kinds of groups. I mean, fundamentally different. Sure. Groups. Yeah. So I'm not in any activist networks whatsoever. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, if any, I'm such an extreme loner that I, I couldn't last a minute in any activist group. Um, but so the kinds of groups that I actually participate in are, are decision-making bodies within, within the university, not even the department. The department, department is small beer in comparison to other stuff that goes on. And everything you're talking about, they, I mean, these are the strategies for winning. Um, you, you talk a lot, you, you <laughs> flaunt your knowledge uh, you use jargon, you use acronyms, and all these things are calculated, and I know they're calculated because I've done it, to, <laughs> to sort of win an argument, to silence other people, to make other people feel small, less adequate, incapable, um, and willing to comply with whatever it is that, that you're suggesting. So maybe there's something about the kind of group and what the group's function is or why the group actually exists mm. and drives a lot of this. None of it is thought of as, and none, I don't think anything is resented um, in the kinds of groups that I have to participate in, because everyone's doing the same kind of thing, 
if they can. Um, mm. What is resented is if, if you're the person that's making the meeting go on longer than it needs to go on, because <laughs> almost no one ever wants to be in the room. Uh, so those are the kinds of issues that I, I come up against. But when I think about in conversation with people I care about, um, there there's a constant anxiety I have to always think that this should be an open space. I never, ever want to dominate uh, an environment. I never want to be the one who gets the zinger in or makes the comment or speaks at length to, to, make, a, to make a point. I don't feel like I'm censoring myself. You know? and, um, and hmm. it's, it's how I perceive the dynamics in a room. Maybe I'm sort of, sorry, I'm not making a whole lot of sense now, but I feel like I'm sort of on that liberal side of things that you just decide, uh, described. Yeah, no, I, I, that makes that makes perfect sense. But don't you think even in sort of bureaucratic or kind of administrative types of situations, people do get impatient and frustrated with, um, how do I put this? Like, I, I feel like it's a general rule of social structures that anyone who wants to like question too much of it is going to seen it is going to be seen as like a gadfly, right? I mean, that's not that controversial, I don't think. Um, and so in some sense, like, if you, if you feel like in, in like a certain administrative settings, there's no resentment, it might just be because there's no gadflies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that's absolutely um, what I think of my brain. Because I think like in general, it's just a general rule that like, and this is why I'm so fascinated by, by this sort of stuff, because this, this is like, it seems to be like a, the fun, one of the fundamental mechanisms whereby like a shitty status quo reproduces itself, no matter how much everyone hates it, yeah. uh, is that like in almost any setting, if there's any individual in a group, whether it be a small group or a big group, like any individual initiatives to like say, in, in, in even the most subtle way, um, like, hey, I have, I have this new idea that is like totally new and it's not, uh, none of us are currently thinking it, but here's, here's this idea. Like, that's almost universally punished, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, like, on the high levels and low levels, in the sense that, like, like another example that I find in, in sort of, like, young adult social milieus is, and this is especially strong in, in the UK, for obvious re for reasons that will become obvious, um, is, like, this the, the taboo on, like, emotional stuff, mm. um, or, like, like, feelings and stuff like that. Um, like, the taboo, especially on and any kind of length, you know? You can do, like, a how are you, how are you, you know, how's it going? Um... But like I'm like a very emotional person, and I and I I, val I just I tend to val I value like transparency and honesty and like sharing and stuff like that a lot, just in my personal like lifestyle, I guess, or whatever. But um, and also like for political reasons, I think it's important. But uh, you know, like when I go to the pub with like people, uh, like young adults, uh, like a few friends, like I like sincerely like I don't just want to know like how's it going. I want to know like like how have you actually been feeling, you know, like uh. Mm -hmm. Like, that interests me. And I want to I want to share, like, you know, because I'm, I'm, like, I want to share if, like, one week I'm, like, really depressed, but the next week I'm really happy because I'm, like, being really healthy and this shit. Like, I want to go into that. I want to, like, ex like share why that is, and it's I think it's fascinating. But I also think it's, like, necessary to to have, like, semi-public exchanges around it because how else are you going to make sense out of it? How else are you going to make that, like, a reality mm -hmm. when actual reality tells us all of those things are just, like, insane personal uh, things that w we shouldn't actually treat as real, right? Um, so that's like my, that's like my honest kind of like attitude to what basic, like just basic good social interaction should be like, basically mm -hmm. it, should, it should involve a little bit, at least a little bit of like some honest, like, uh, what's going on with 
what's going on with your life and feelings and like yeah some maybe some slightly difficult shit because uh, that's what life is right um but there's like a very like strong generalized kind of stigma against that yeah. um which again it doesn't make itself felt through like no one would if i if i if i get too personal or emotional it's not like you know i don't hang out with shitty people like no one's gonna like stand up and like you know shut shut me down or like tell me to shut the fuck up yeah. uh obviously it's not like that um it's just a generalized non-compliance <laughs> you know it's like it's a general it's a ge- or like not it's not compliance because i'm not like imposing or enforcing anything it's just general non-participation it's general um stonewall mm-hmm. like i'm not here for this yeah. uh and and the people i do hang out with and i'm friends with like they get me and they're cool with me they're they can tolerate me you know yeah. and that's why like we have an equilibrium that's why we're friends right um but there is just but there's a general wall across which they 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 will not go you know yeah. um and it's so it's not cruel and it's not like oppressive to me but well i kind of it mean, in a, in a minor way it's like telling me i can't go there right yeah. uh, and it's and it's telling me i you know they might tolerate me venting if i need to or something um but it's not like a encouraging of yes let's explore this stuff you know um and so it is a way it is a form of of like enforcing like what i was yesterday you know what i mean mm-hmm. and making sure that tomorrow i don't become something slightly different um and i think it is because um it is basically because like all change is like or like when anyone does something that's not already normal it, it is seen as like an as like a, as an indictment of what we are already doing and that like yeah. we take it personally we resent that and so we don't allow it to i don't know uh it's, it's and when you boil it down it's actually pretty trite it's like not very sophisticated like psychological discovery <laughs> yeah. no, it's, well it's very culturally specific um as well so um when i arrived in this country uh, i experienced a lot of what you just described it seemed very difficult to just have what i thought of as a normal open conversation with people um can I make the same in the states in many contexts but what i discovered was that i wasn't i wasn't in the group where the people i was talking to would talk the way i wanted to talk so mm. I, I was they did talk like that and the, with their with people they classified as those kinds of friends and they might have other friends they might might have even called me a friend but i wasn't that kind of friend they had other acquaintances um and it wasn't people who they've known for a long period of time they might have met them the day before but i sensed that there was a way of classifying acquaintances and there were some people you opened up to and some people you didn't i think we all have that mm-hmm. to a certain extent i'm sure you don't want right. to you know you don't sit on the bus and start talking to the person next to you about how healthy you feel this week but i want to i really do i really do and i sometimes do i sometimes do precisely that kind of overstepping i mean that's kind of what i'm talking about i'm like okay. constantly overstepping yeah. in ways that people find unreasonable and th- and like aggressive right. um but I'm just like honestly trying to, like, be human with them. Right. Okay. Well, um, that... I mean, maybe not that literally, but, but <laughs> that's exactly what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's, it's those sort of border cases yeah. where, like, it's not reasonable. Yeah. Uh, but in a in an ideal world, it probably would be more common, wouldn't it? Like, do you, see, do you know what I mean? Like, I think we we all sort of share that. So, if there's a taboo around, where did the taboo come from? I, I mean, I just don't understand what it, where why it would arise. Resentment. Um, I think so. <laughs> I, I I actually. Um, this is one of the things I think might be culturally specific about it. I think there's a, the, in some cultures, it's an extremely deep commitment to a public and private divide, just a, a psychological barrier there. And there are certain things that are, that are about me and about mine, uh, and then there are other things. And just keep those things separate. So, you know, fin- good fences make good neighbors, that, that kind of thing. 
Um, and, I, and I think that can be culturally expressed in different ways. I think, I think Americans do have a lot of it, and I think it's, it's much more deeply entrenched in this country, at least that's been my experience. But do you believe that good fences make good neighbors? Um, if, there's, if there's a system of property ownership and you want your property to be separated from the neighbors, <laughs> then I think in those practical circumstances, then, yeah, you probably want a good fence. Um, I think it would be healthier if people were a little bit more um, willing to converse across the fence and let the fence fall into disrepair in various places, if I can just sort of carry on with this stupid metaphor. Mm. Um, I'm of the mind that maybe the, front, the fences will always find a way of cropping up in some shape, mm. but the complete, the complete dissolution of the fences, well, they got rid of the monasteries, it didn't get rid of the organized religion. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting metaphor um, because to me, I think that, yeah, I mean, I definitely am not a proponent of the idea of like smashing all fences, you know, like no barriers, no boundaries mm. between anyone ever. Like, I'm not of this, I'm not like of that sort of like, you know, kind of like 1960s style, kind of hippie uh, oriented Smash. attitude of well, of, of the I'm talking about the particular attitude of like, uh, you know, we should all like take LSD and that there we can we can live we can create a world where all boundaries are just smashed basically, and uh, all of the like illusory differences and divisions can be removed uh, all at once by force of will and agreement and uh, like creative being and living. Mm -hmm. I'm not of that school. Um, I'm much more of uh, I'm much more of a sort of I mean I'm sort of like a left Heideggerian in some sense like I'm much more of a and I'm also very Catholic in some ways like I, I believe in uh, like deep inner reckoning um, and as, as a prerequisite for liberation not as like a uh, dismantle and let and break down all um, walls, and that will solve everything. It's almost like I'm a proponent of like we actually need bigger and better walls uh, and fences, like around certain things, so as to enable the, the our efforts to like step over fences or or walk through fences to become more meaningful. Uh, that's a really stretched metaphor. That I don't, that's probably much more. <laughs> I think confused. we're taking this metaphor as far as that's probably much more confused than it's helpful. But what am I getting at? It's basically that I think. Um, how do I put this? Like, it's not like I want everyone to just be like totally open about everything all the time. Um, but I do think that like when we, if we are going to make efforts to be together as humans in like human capacities then we should just do it a little bit more, like, sincerely, you know? Um, and, and, and actually, I think, so I think, like, we should, the wall, I think the fences that we put between friends and enemies should be bigger. Right. But I think the, the fences that we put between friends should be smaller right. in another, in some way. Um, and I think that the, the enemy at the gates is, like, way... I actually think that there are more enemies at the gates... Um, than most, like, like liberal, you know, like, uh, you know, the typical kind of just, like, progressive, like, moderate progressive type. Um, 
I actually have like bigger fences up around myself, around things that a lot of people would say I'm uh, an idiot for even caring about. Like essentially like spiritual things, you know, like, like I, you know, I am very Catholic in the sense that, I mean, I, I'm not like practicing Catholic. I don't like, I don't think I would like, if I, I, I don't say that I believe in God. I don't like do any of the rituals, but I wouldn't say I'm an atheist, but, um, but yeah, I'm not like practicing or anything, but, uh, I, I do basically kind of believe in sin in some sense, like just in a secular way. Like I do think that like, I basically think that human beings are capable of extraordinary evil, um, in a way that is, is almost essentially inherited, uh, as like a, a being in this world. Um, and is so deep and so constantly threatening to actualize itself that the, the sort of somewhat Christian attitude of like, uh, being hyper aware of that to me is actually like very sensible. And, and I do kind of see the world that way and I see myself that way. Now I start talking like this and the same people who want to have reasonable, you know, fences between things, uh, will say that I'm being crazy. Uh, and that that's just like, you know, like stupid old, like superstitious type thinking. Right. Uh, so I find, I think that there's this kind of, um, uh, how do I, a hypo hypocrisy, I guess. Um, in which like people want to, people want to put up all these little fences, uh, but then they also want to act like everything's not that big a deal. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like, I think, I actually think a lot of things are like a really big, important deal. And most people would, most people see me as like completely unreasonable and how intensely I think things, some things are a big deal. Uh, but then when I want to like actually just like have a moment of like relaxed, uh, interpersonal, like, presence with someone, um, like, they're the ones who's, who, who are, like, afraid of all these things, you know, of all these, like, possible threats to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there's a relationship there. Again, I'm really sort of, like, expressing sort of the outer bounds of what I currently think about, so if that makes no sense, forgive me, but I, but I am, I'm kind of trying to give words to something I maybe I've never given words to. I think there's a, basically, there's a kind of functional relationship there, I think, mm -hmm. between, like, uh, uh, did, did that make sense? Did you like a yeah. functional relationship between like, uh, it's almost like if you don't take seriously real demons, you then need to create all these little bullshit fences right. around you right. precisely because maybe those demons are fucking real, but you haven't been taking care of your shit. Right. right? Um, whereas if you actually have big, deep walls inside of yourself mm. because you take these demons for the reality that they might actually represent, mm -hmm. then you actually can go through life without needing so many like little bullshit walls. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah. Cool. Good. I, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that came out with something that was sensible because I was I was afraid that was going to be like one of those one of those sort of uh, tangents that I was going to have to just quit and acknowledge admitted failure. No, no, it worked. Uh, it'll have to be a point where we stop because I think I've completely run out of steam. Okay, I'm so sorry. See, have I been rude in, again? Like, no, am I doing no. exactly the thing that, like, I was just saying I, sh I, I, no. I do too much? No, no, not at all. Did I talk no. too much? No, no, not at all. It's been, it's been very interesting. I, I am uh, conversation exhausting. Cool, totally. Um, I hope you had fun. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining me. And this is a, I really enjoyed it. It's good. I, um, I did too. You're going to have an enormous audio file. I don't know what you're going to do with that. But. Yeah. Uh, to the greater glory of uh, whatever it is this represents. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks. All right, I'll just hit it off. Um, thanks, Russell.